Hello, and welcome back to the Digging Deeper podcast, hosted by 4constructionpros.com. I'm Jonathan, and this episode welcomes back Rick Bohan, Vice President of Sustainability for the Portland Cement Association. Today, we're covering carbonation and explaining how concrete acts as a CO2 sink in carbon capture, utilization, and storage. This adds to our Concrete Needs Society series, discussing the five C's of the PCA carbon neutrality value chain. Clinker, cement, concrete, construction, and carbonation. I caught up with Rick the Friday after the 2022 ACI Spring Convention. So good morning, Rick. Uh, it's been a while. I think it's been a few weeks since we've uh, spoke on a podcast. Uh, how have it been since then? Uh, busy, <laughs> but in a very good way. You know, we've been in full implementation phase for the roadmap. So uh, our work just continues to accelerate getting the carbon neutrality. So busy, but in a great way. Really excited to be back again, Jonathan. So thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Um, thank you for uh, for joining us and speaking to us. Um, one of the links uh, in the PCA roadmap to carbon neutrality uh, value chain is about concrete as a carbon sink. I believe it's the last uh, chain link, if you will. Um, the roadmap addresses it in two different ways, uh, kind of passively through what I think is called mineral carbonation, carbon, yeah, carbonation, where concrete that isn't buried reabsorbs carbon dioxide over its life cycle. The other is seems to be more active where CO2 is captured as like the cement plant and then utilizing that emissions, those emissions. Uh, so I'd like to talk about these one at a time, but before we get into them, what seems to be what seems to be the biggest points of confusion for people on these topics? Well, so I think a lot of times people are conflating, you refer to it as mineral carbonation. There's natural carbonation. Okay. And then I would say there's artificial uh, carbonation. I think there's a lot of confusion because people are very familiar, well, material scientists and people in the cement and concrete industry tend to be much more familiar with natural carbonation as opposed to artificial carbonation. So I think that's probably the confusion. All right. Um, but, you know, if I could, so let me give you, let, let's talk about carbonation just in general, if that's okay. Um, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, because I, I, I want to give you a very little bit of physics and a very little bit of chemistry behind carbonation. So let's start with a, a very, very little bit of physics. So concrete, in a sense, is like a sponge in that it has pores. So a sponge has pores. And, and by the way, your skin has pores and, and bread has pores, right? So a lot of things have pores. In the case of concrete, those pores, those nooks and crannies are microscopic. So concrete has pores. Okay, so what? Well, just like a sponge with pores, that means concrete can absorb. So if you think about it, if you put a sponge on your kitchen countertop on a spill, those pores are what allow the sponge to soak up some moisture. Likewise, if you put butter on a piece of toast, the pores allow the 
the butter to kind of seep into that piece of toast. And of course, if you're using sunscreen or some kind of moisturizer on your face, again, it gets into your pores and that's a good thing. So likewise, concrete, because of those pores, can absorb um, whether it's moisture or CO2 or other materials. Is, so, is these, are these pores just creating like a natural vacuum for anything? And that's the reason why so much moisture can get through and cause so much problems or. Right. So, so it's not a, it's not a vacuum per okay. se. So let me, and let me address the third similarity because I think it'll answer your question. So it has pores can absorb, but concrete is not permeable. And there's a difference. So for example, let's go back to the sponge. So if I put the sponge on the kitchen countertop and I come back and I don't do anything to the sponge, the top surface of the sponge is not gonna be wet, right? There's a reason why. It's because those pores aren't connected. Likewise, you put on sunscreen or you put on a moisturizer, it's not like you're gonna taste it you know, on the inside of your mouth because it, it's not going all the way through, which is a good thing, right? Right. So likewise, concrete, although it has pores and although it absorbs, it's not permeable. So, so that's why we use concrete for swimming pools or for water treatment facilities. So yes, some moisture will ultimately pass through, but that doesn't mean it's not watertight, right? Yeah. So well, that's, that's the reason the why we have coatings and sealants. Exactly. So that's the very little bit of physics people need to understand. Again, concrete can absorb because of those pores and because of that, the mechanics behind that. Okay, so let's talk again a very little bit of chemistry. So I want to go back to the dark ages, which for me is before the discovery of Portland cement. Okay. So back then, when people were building with bricks and with stone, they needed something to put the bricks or the stone in, something to form that matrix. So what did they do? They would take limestone, calcium carbonate, heat it up, and they would turn it into lime, quick lime. And that was a fine white powder. Well, then they would take that quick lime and add water to it. That becomes calcium hydroxide or slaked lime. And then they would put that quicklime along with some sand and other materials. They put that between the bricks or the stones. And over a long period of time, that quicklime, the water would evaporate and CO2 would infiltrate and it would become hard as a rock because it was. That then transitioned back to calcium carbonate. That's why if you go to castles and, and the old houses like from Downton Abbey, wherever you see brick and these huge building stones back in the day, if you look at the, the mortar in between, it's essentially calcium carbonate. Okay, so fast forward to the discovery of Portland cement. Well, we don't have lime. Uh, we have a very, very tiny amount, but, but what we do have is calcium hydroxide. So remember I said, People would take lime and they'd add water. That became slaked lime, which is calcium hydroxide. So those pores, the absorption of concrete and the fact that concrete has calcium hydroxide within it 
that calcium hydroxide reacts with the CO2 in the atmosphere. Now, there's about 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that takes a while, but that CO2, once it reaches the calcium hydroxide, that reacts and it forms, lo and behold, calcium carbonate. So we're, we're taking this full circle and that, that material is then, that CO2 is completely sequestered. Now, a couple of points. Firstly, this does take a long, a, a long period of time. Secondly, it's a function on whether or not the concrete is exposed to the atmosphere. So if you have concrete that's buried, the CO2 will never get to it. Likewise, for a lot of exposed concrete, pavements, walls, things of this nature, yeah, it will definitely absorb that CO2. Now, that's natural carbonation or mineral carbonation, okay? We're not doing anything to, to pressurize it. We're not, we're not trying to force that. That's a natural process. More recently, people have said, well, look, if we can do that, how about taking fresh concrete and injecting CO2 into it somehow? So there are technologies out there where people are essentially shooting or injecting fresh CO2 into fresh concrete. There is some amount of CO2 that can be absorbed that way. In the precast concrete industry, what they typically do is they will take fresh concrete and they'll put it in a chamber and they will pressurize the chamber with pure CO2. That's a way to accelerate the absorption of the CO2 into the concrete. So we've known about this for a very, very long period of time. And now we're finally recognizing number one, that we want to account for that CO2 that's being absorbed. And number two, that we can actually accelerate that process. There are ways to do that. So that's you know, a very broad brush of what carbonation is and how it works. Okay. And I think that's where all of this physics and all these chemistry uh, lessons that we probably didn't get in high school, um, that would cause a lot of confusion because if I remember, if, if memory serves, a report came out in summer 2021 that stated that concrete could act as a carbon sink and start right. reabsorbing carbon dioxide. While we as the concrete construction community knew about this fact, uh, it seems like the, the rest of the world didn't. And the media went kind of a little crazy with their headlines, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was like the public just started to recognize that the concept um, and they gained a lot of attention. Can you like ex So, so yeah, let, let, me go, <laughs> let me get into that. So I think a few things started and even before 2020, there was an article in, um, I think it was Nature Magazine and they went through a series of assumptions and they said, wow, if you look at all the concrete that's out there over the last hundred years, it's probably absorbed and it was a huge amount of CO2. And I think that got the wheels turning because people said, you know, if that's the case, we really should look into just how much 
CO2 is being absorbed. And again, not that it's a game changer, but look, scientists, the whole point of science is we want to find out, we want to answer questions. So people naturally said, well, let's find out. Now, that's been accelerated in part because of the IPCC report that came out. And they finally recognized, okay, you know what? This is sound science, and we really should include this when we look at not just where CO2 is coming from, but also where CO2 is going. And this is a, a way to permanently sequester CO2. So they started looking at it, and PCA, along with the US Environmental Protection Agency, and also researchers at IVL, which is a Swedish environmental institute, we've been meeting routinely for years looking at this phenomena, and it's actually now codified in a European standard where it's actually modeled out. One of the huge opportunities for research is to figure out how quickly this takes place. That's very much an open question. Is this a linear process? Is this you know, an exponential process? Does it flatten out? Well, we know what the endpoints are. We know how much CO2 potentially is absorbed. That's 10% of the CO2 emissions generated during the manufacture and transportation of both cement and concrete. We're confident with that. We actually think that's probably conservative. I think when we dig into it, we'll find that number, that percentage will be higher. So, but what, we, if to give it like context, like the energy created to form a ton of concrete, um, and I mean like a cubic ton or a, a cubic yard cubic of yard. concrete, sure. some a unit of concrete, just 10% of the carbon dioxide emitted just to create that can be reabsorbed just naturally, that's always been happening. Absolutely, okay. yes, yes, absolutely. And there are a number of models that look at how much um, concrete is exposed to the atmosphere, because we know it's a function of surface exposure. We also know it's a function of the moisture. If you get 50% moisture, you can actually accelerate that process. And we also know it's a function of the concentration of CO2. So that's why precasters like injecting it in a chamber as opposed to waiting for the 400 parts per million to kind of seep in over a very long period of time. So there's actually a European standard that has this model. And the, the work that we've done, we're at what we call a tier one model. At some point, we're going to be at a tier three model, which will be more complex and will give us a better idea. Right now, again, conservatively, we know it's 10%. Could it be 15 or 20%? Perhaps, but without more research, without more testing, we just don't wanna go down that road. We wanna be um, spot on when it comes to the numbers. And that's why this is really an exciting area of research, because again, we know that this happens. We know it starts from zero and it goes to 10%, but how quickly that happens. And, and is that process, again, linear? Is it exponential? Those are questions we still have to look into. And that's research we still need to, to look at. It'd be 
like looking far in the future, you know, once we hit the net neutral of the cement industry uh, at, at 2050, um, then eventually there's going to be no carbon dioxide emitted in the cement production. And then the concrete created will just be suddenly negative. Well, that's, and that's really the long-term, I mean, our roadmap, we go to carbon neutrality, but the reality is if society can address the issues of where this energy is going to come from, then we're opening up the potential for carbon negative concrete. That's an entirely different matter. And that, that really is, you know, what I would call the difference between, um, uh, well, that's kind of Star Trek technology. Let's, <laughs> let's put it that way. But I, I think that's, that's a really exciting prospect to do that. And by the way, talking about carbonation. So look, you know, if you look at buildings like uh, the, the Pentagon is a classic example because it's 80 years old and it has a lot of concrete. Well, it has a lot of surface area. So it's been absorbing CO2 over an 80 year period. I think at some point, the concrete in the Pentagon will probably be, not that the Pentagon will be demolished, but I'm sure they're gonna rehab and renovate, right? So what do you do with that concrete? Well, you can reuse it. And reusing it means you're gonna crush it up into really small pieces. Well, remember, carbonation is a function of surface area. So if you're going from a wall that's let's say 100 square feet to all these teeny tiny particles, now instead of 100 square feet, maybe you have a million square feet for that CO2 to uh, reabsorb. So concrete that never, uh, that never got the CO2 the CO2 that never reached the, the way in the interior of that wall, now that can be carbonated once you've demolished the concrete. And because it can, again, it's permanently sequestered. And now what? Well, okay, so now you've got either A, a raw material to go back into the cement manufacturing process, or B, you've got a ready-made aggregate that you can use in the concrete process. Um, so this is, I, I mean, this is really what the circular economy is all about. Again, it takes a long period of time because the reality is concrete lasts a long period of time. So, but that's good news for us, I think. So we're really excited about it. When we're talking about recycling concrete, uh, as far as putting it into and using it as an aggregate again, and then carbon aiding uh, that. Are we talking, just put it into a pile and then let it just absorb ca uh, carbon from the air naturally for a couple of years? Or do we have to put it into that pressurized tank like the precast plants? Well, we can do either one. And the idea being that the more we can expose it to the atmosphere, the quicker that process will be. So if all we did was take the concrete and put it in this huge pile, like the size of a pyramid, well, that's not very effective. On the other hand, if what we did was kind of actually make, you know, uh, rows, individual rows, and, and let it recarbonate that way over a period of maybe a few months, that would be far more effective. So those are the kinds of things we're looking at. And again, 
the area really ripe for research is to find out, well, how quickly does this take place? Mm-hmm. Because we may find, well, gee, all we've got to do is let these concrete stockpiles be exposed to the atmosphere over six months, or maybe it's 12 months. But if we're solving the global warming problem, that's a very small price to pay. And then keep in mind that if we're using that as aggregate in fresh concrete, well, we still have the calcium hydroxide in the cement. So it's still gonna carbonate the fresh concrete. So even though that aggregate has already been carbonated, doesn't mean that the concrete, the new concrete won't recarbonate. That's, I mean, to me, it's a win-win across the board. We're recycling a material that we know has a long life, is durable, is resilient. And we're also addressing the issue of carbon neutrality, which ultimately addresses the issue of global warming. I mentioned seals before because uh, we were talking about pools and that type of thing. So we're trying to like stop moisture mitigation into it. Um, it. Does that completely stop the carbon dioxide as well? And then conversely, is there anything contractors can do to increase the absorption rate? No, contra- okay, so let's start there. Contractors really don't have an option to increase the rate of carbonation. Oh, dang. This is much more a, a function of what designers can do in terms of either increasing the surface area or just taking advantage of this natural phenomena. Now, when it comes to sealers and other materials like that, It depends on the application. So I would say if you've used a sealer in the past for a particular application, like a swimming pool, for example, well, you should still continue to use that. On the other hand, if you haven't used a sealer for an application, like a sidewalk, then don't use one now. Because depending on the type of sealer you use, you will at least slow down the rate of the CO2 absorption. No question about it. Now, no sealer is 100% perfect. So you're not going to eliminate it, but you will definitely slow that process down. Can we switch gears just a little bit and start going into the carbon capture technology, um, CCUS, if you will. Um, Talk us how that works and how we're looking at utilizing the gas captured at the plant and then right back into the concrete? So a lot of different things we can do. There are a variety of technologies. Let me group them into what I would call traditional carbon capture technologies and then non-traditional. So traditional, typically people think of that as solvents, sorbents, and membranes. So solvents are things that have been around since the night, well, for a very long time, but in terms of carbon capture, solvent technology was first probably in the mid 1930s. The natural gas industry routinely scrubs CO2 out of natural gas. They do that because the, the CO2, if it goes through a pipeline, will tend to corrode it. So they've been doing that since the 1930s. They use a solvent technology. And basically, What they're doing is they're spraying a chemical inside of a closed container. That chemical reacts with the CO2. At some point, that chemical then becomes saturated 
they take the chemical and basically boil off the CO2 in another container, capture that CO2, and then use it for other purposes. When you think about a solvent, think of it this way. Um, it's kind of like when you wash your hands with soap and water. The mechanical action, yeah, that will get the dirt off your hands, but the soap carries the dirt away. Likewise, when you're talking about a solvent with CO2 capture, essentially what you're doing is that solvent is what's taking the CO2 away. So that's what carries the CO2. That's solvents. Then you have um, sorbents, and a sorbent is like a sponge. So there are different materials that will absorb CO2. And depending on the type of material, that absorption will either be a physical process where you're using high pressure, or it could be a temperature process where you're using high temperatures to make the absorption more effective. But again, a sorbent, think of a sponge. Then finally, you have membranes. And a membrane, think of it like a screen door. So what you're trying to do is have a very, very small membrane that only allows different materials to go through. Sorry about the cat in the background, but she wants in on it too. But anyway, so a membrane is like a screen door. It will allow everything to pass through, but it will capture the CO2 molecules. So those are all traditional. Now there's other technologies out there too. So for example, there's cryogenics. What if we took the gas and we liquefied it? Because different gases have different densities. CO2 is a very dense gas. Well, you can liquefy CO2. And in fact, anyone that's ever seen dry ice, that's what CO2 is. It's pure CO2 that's been uh, liquefied and compressed. So we can use cryogenics. Another technology would be something like oxyfuel, where, okay, instead of burning in an atmosphere of oxygen and nitrogen, like we breathe, how about we burn in an atmosphere of pure oxygen? And that makes it much easier because then the products of combustion primarily are just CO2. So we can capture the CO2 because it's at a higher purity when it comes out of the, out of the uh, stack. So oxyfuel, another one, non-traditional, algae. Every ton of algae potentially will soak up two tons of CO2. Now that's a great technology and you can then take that algae and do all sorts of things with it. You could turn it into a biofuel, you could turn it into nutraceuticals, which you then sell. Um, there's a plant in uh, Canada that has been piloting that. Very simple process. So cryogenic, oxyfuel, algae, there's all sorts of other technologies that are, are really innovative. Just recently, there's a plant in Belgium that is now scaling up to capture 100 thousand tons of CO2 annually. That's really a lot. Most of the capture technology projects that I've seen have been very small, 10 metric, in the tens and hundreds of metric tons. To scale up to that level is really significant, but that project is really unique. 
what they're doing is they're calcining the material. They're taking calcium carbonate and driving off the CO2. But unlike a traditional cement kiln, they're doing it in a closed environment. So what that means is that the output from that calcination is just CO2 and steam, nothing else. Because it's just CO2 and steam, the CO2 is very pure and it's far easier to capture than it is in a typical cement plant. So that's an interesting project that we'll, we're really excited to see that progress and we'll, we'll be excited to see what the results of that project are. And Jonathan, I think there are other technologies that are starting to bubble up, but those are the ones right now that tend to be, I would say, in play. Doesn't mean there aren't others coming down the horizon, but those right now are the ones that are most in play. You also asked about, well, what happens to that CO2? That's a question of the age, because once you capture it, that's only half the battle. Then you have to compress it and store it or transport it and find a use for it. Now, in my mind, one of the uses, of course, is sure, in Texas, they've used CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. That's a short-term solution. The long-term, the optimal solution is to take CO2 and turn it into a usable product where it's permanently sequestered. And by the way, that's why EPA, or excuse me, that's why PCA and the Department of Energy through their, their carbon use um, folks, that's why we have ongoing discussions with them. That's what they're trying to figure out. And again, it's an area where there's a lot of research going on right now. Do you know of any like legislation that's ongoing right now? Can you tell me about um, how those are developed? So a lot of those programs right now, especially the ones through the Department of Energy, those, are, those start off with what's called a funding opportunity announcement. They've identified a whole range of solutions to global warming. I should say potential solutions because they require research. So they'll send out a funding opportunity announcement. That is then responded to by different people, uh, industry, academia, other government um, uh, agencies. And then the, the uh, Department of Energy in this particular case, then they provide an award. And that project then goes through its development phase and ultimately there is a report that's issued that shows the results of that. If the report is favorable, additional research takes place. If it's not favorable, it's kind of like, well, line it up or line it out. So if we know that it doesn't work, hey, we don't want to waste any more money on it. Now, that said, what has changed, I would say, over the last few years is that the Department of Energy and actually all of government has started to realize energy is just one part of the equation. So rather than just focus on the energy producers, they're now focusing on the industrial users because there's a huge opportunity. So not just cement manufacturing, but steel, aluminum, glass, auto assembly, petrochemical, pulp and paper, all these large consumers of energy are now in the mix with this type of research. 
that's a huge change over the last few years. And it's, it's exciting because we're now at the table where we can take advantage of that as an industry. And our members, as you can see, they've taken advantage of it. So right now there's been four or five ongoing um, projects in the cement industry looking just at carbon capture. That's gonna continue, there will be more. And by the way, there's also projects that are taking place worldwide in the cement industry. So those continue and we'll see which ones kind of bubble up to the top. And I think also, I like to say there's no silver bullet, there's silver buckshot. So I think as you think about carbon capture, keep in mind, I don't think it's just gonna be one solution. In fact, I think you'll see a variety of solutions even at the individual plant level. So you might see a plant that installs cryogenic capture, but also uses oxyfuel combustion. Or you might see a plant that uses algae, but also uses amine scrubbing for other reasons. Who knows? And, and kind of that's the excitement that we're seeing now, especially on the research end where You've got cement companies and the government agencies involved in this. I wonder if certain technologies, certain solutions, if you will, will work better for one plant because they're in a geographic location because the limestone might be just a little bit different. And then, uh, or maybe uh, supplies would be more readily available in a different part of the country. Yeah, so to that point, and that, boy, that's a great, it's a great point that I'd like to highlight. So there are a number of constraints that plants have. So let me give you one example. If you have a cement plant in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, for example, you're probably landlocked. You don't have a lot of room on your plant to build in additional infrastructure. So if you have a technology that requires a large footprint, maybe a solvent technology, for example, that probably isn't going to be a preferred option for you at that location. Whereas if you have a plant out in, oh, let's say Oklahoma or Montana, and you have a large footprint and you have a lot of property available, well then maybe a technology that requires a larger footprint becomes far more attractive to you. Likewise, suppose you've got a plant in the high desert. Well, some of these technologies require a lot of water. Water in the high desert is a precious commodity, so that might not be the most attractive option for you. But on the other hand, if you're near a water supply or you have an existing municipal water supply and you're in a an ur more urban area, maybe that becomes your preferred option. So like I said, I think it's really gonna depend on where you're at, the type of process you have, and what you're trying to do. So. Is your plant older? Is it newer? Is, are you trying to scrub out all the CO2? Is there a use on site for the CO2? Um, is there an existing link up to a transportation facility, a pipeline for the CO2? Those, I mean, there's a whole host of issues that people are gonna take a step back and say, okay, what works best for us as our, as our company from a profit standpoint? what works best for the planet from a sustainability standpoint, what works best for our customers 
again, from sustainability, from resiliency. You know, we keep going back to this, that roadmap to carbon neutrality, that requires a lot of intentionality and it's not a one size fits all. It's a very holistic approach that requires everybody in the value chain to be very intentional about every decision they make, including and especially for carbon capture decisions. I think it's exciting to think about how all of this is developing right in front of our eyes. I mean, the, the natural performance of concrete reabsorbing carbon dioxide and then and the analysis of how much is that is happening um, on our way to net zero and then beyond. And then we're you know, capturing the emissions as the cement is creating. We're on our way to that Star Trek concrete. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, that's what, that's what I'm excited about because I, I'm old enough <laughs> to, to remember when people on a project site would refer to concrete as mud and they would say, when is the mud showing up? Well, concrete is not a commodity. It is a precious resource. And I think one of the most gratifying things that I've seen over the last few years is the recognition that it is a precious resource, that it is a solution to the problem of our age, whether it's the problem of sustainable infrastructure, resilient infrastructure, getting lesser developed countries clean water and being able to treat the wastewater they produce in an environmentally friendly manner. That really is exciting because all these things are now falling into place. And again, I go back to, we're taking a holistic approach. We're being very intentional, but most importantly, we finally recognize Hey, and by the way, it's not just concrete, but concrete in particular, it is a precious resource. And if we use it as a precious resource, it then becomes the ultimate solution as part of the circular economy. I, I'm passionate about it because again, I'm old enough to remember when that wasn't the case at all. And boy, things have changed so dramatically now that people recognize not just the problem, but the solution. Sure. So the, the capture technology is a cement plant uh, solution. Um, the, the natural performance of absorbing the gas, that's just something that's going to happen even without the contractor being involved. I mean, all you have to do is just work on a project, start constructing something. Right. Um, what is the next step as far as like concrete contractors, general contractors, the construction world, what can they do as part of the carbon sink? I'll, I'll tell you exactly what they can do. So look, and it's, it's interesting. Now, I just got back from the American Concrete Institute and we had a meeting with some of the top contractors, building contractors, as well as concrete contractors, some of the top contractors in the US. And our message to them was help us help you because what they're hearing from building owners as they build a building essentially is hey 
We get what the cement and concrete industry are doing in terms of reducing their embodied carbon for the material. What are you guys doing at the job site? How, how are you reducing your carbon footprint? They are now starting to look at that. And that's really exciting because before, nobody really considered that. But now people are demanding. They want to know, well, what is the carbon footprint? So as part of our roadmap process, especially in the implementation phase, we have reached out to contractors in particular to help us help them. So some of the things we're looking at are number one, how do you even measure what the carbon footprint is? I'll give you two quick examples. One of the biggest things that, that um, generates CO2 on a job site, number one, earthwork. Why? Because you have all this heavy equipment, diesel powered heavy equipment belching out CO2. Number two, most people don't realize this. I call it the flush and fill. A lot of these systems in a building, you've got to test. That includes a lot of the water supply and other things. All that testing, some of which is necessary, some of which is just overkill, all that testing requires energy. And again, that energy equates to CO2. So we had that kickoff meeting and we'll be working with contractors because they already track all sorts of things. And what we're trying to do ultimately is take the information that they track and equate that to a carbon footprint. Okay, once you do that, now you can say, well, if this is our carbon footprint and these are the major components, what can we do to reduce them? That becomes step two. So for contractors out there listening to the podcast, my, my message to you is start thinking about your carbon footprint as you build a building and ask yourself, well, where does this come from? Do I measure it? And then as you start to think through it and you start to measure it, ask yourself, all right, how can I reduce that? So we can help them reduce it on the material side, but ultimately contractors themselves are gonna have to figure out, well, what does this really mean? How do I change my means and methods to address this issue? And again, this is all really new stuff. So I used the example before, Jonathan, you know, if you think about a construction site here in the States, a lot of times it's like, it reminds me of a five-year-old with Duplo blocks. They just dump them all out <laughs> and it, you've got all, they're all over the place. But on the other hand, think about somebody who would be very intentional about their building site before they even mobilized they'd really think about, okay, where am I gonna store things? And just like we have just-in-time inventory for you know, the big corporations you order stuff from, look, just-in-time inventory for the construction site, just-in-time deliveries, just-in-time labor force. All that comes down to my favorite word, optimization. How can you optimize the activity on the job site to number one, get more efficiency, but number two, and it's really the flip side of that efficiency coin, reduce your carbon footprint. So that we've, we've started that process and I'm really excited about it. And by the way, 
people have started thinking about that in the construction industry. And there are some really innovative products that are coming down the pike and some are available now. So we talked to, for example, a guy who basically has a product that eliminates pore strips and concrete for post-tension slabs. That's a game changer. That really is. So it's that kind of innovative thinking that we're excited about. And these guys have always been innovative. Now they've got an opportunity to show their innovation. It kind of gives a reason and importance to get back out there and start reconnecting. Um, since we've had these like two years of a pandemic and stuck inside our home offices and not being able to go to trade shows, uh, now they're back open. It's, it's so important to get back out there and meet people um, and shake some hands and see yeah. uh, what new ideas are out there again. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it's interesting because, again, at, at the American Concrete Institute, they're really thinking through a lot of these things. I'm on their sustainability committee as well as a number of other committees. And you've really started to engage engineers across the spectrum, whether it's civil, structural, mechanical, everybody has this in their mind. And by the way, it's, it's great to see that it's not just across the engineering disciplines and the design disciplines, it's also across the age spectrum. So of course you have new students, you know, graduating and getting licensed who've been exposed to it, you know, from day one, but you also have people more senior like myself and others who, <laughs> who are, you know, again, genuinely excited because this gives us huge opportunities for innovation. And then when I say innovation, that doesn't mean we take risks. It means we innovate so that we can do things again, more efficiently, more effectively. Yeah, there's no jumping the gun here and just throwing it in there and see if it works. There's right. always like these three years of testing just to make sure it's safe. Exactly, exactly. And that's what we're all, look, we don't ever wanna sacrifice the strength, the durability, the sustainability, the resiliency, we don't ever wanna sacrifice that for the sake of expediency. That's counterproductive. And that works against, by the way, everything I mentioned, strength, resiliency, yeah. it, um, durability, and, you know, and, um, and sustainability too. One thing that, again, I, I'm really excited. So just a day or two ago, uh, ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, announced that they are looking or that they have awarded grants to look at um, life cycle methodology for carbon negative buildings. That's really exciting. So you can see, you know, everybody is involved in this process. I'm so proud that the cement industry has taken the lead on carbon neutrality. But it's also great to see, as I look back, see all these different agencies who are realizing, wow, there's ways we can help the industry. And I think the proof is in the pudding. The fact that ARPA-E and the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency and policymakers on Capitol Hill and designers and architects and everybody is starting to realize this is really good stuff. And that's a huge opportunity. So 
I just wanted to point that out. And, you know, we're going to continue down this road. It's a marathon, even though I feel like I'm always sprinting, but it is a marathon. And, you know, I think I would say one point I'd like to leave the listeners with, we all have a part to play. And if you're not sure what your part is, give me a call. I'll help you figure it out. That's great. Well, I uh, would like to thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you for talking to us and um, have a great day, okay? Thanks so much, Jonathan. And just a reminder, our roadmap to carbon neutrality is available on our website and I'm always a phone call away. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of the Digging Deeper podcast by ForkConstructionPros.com. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and feel free to share. Until next time, stay safe out there.